your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 will be in verses 1 through 14 this morning as we see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. And as we do this, we'll particularly see Jesus emphasizes, if, if there were kind of like a dominant truth that we're seeing here, it's that, that Jesus is in charge uh, of, of worship. And yet as we do this, Jesus demonstrates his authority in a remarkably compassionate way. And so what we'll see is that Christ-like authority is compassionate authority. Christ-like authority is compassionate authority. I'll begin reading in Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, notice the number of times we see those words, the Sabbath, through here, because you'll see them over and over again. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Well, my, by my count, as we read through these verses, we have the words, the Sabbath, something like eight times in 14 verses. And what's not quickly evident, but is obvious as you read through this, particularly as it was originally written, is that every time it appears, it's supposed to emphasize the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue. There's kind of like there's a, a, a push toward that idea. So if you're having a hard time figuring out kind of what the key idea that Jesus is addressing here, it's what you do on the Sabbath. Now, we see the Sabbath pattern a lot throughout the Bible. I mean, it starts in the book of Genesis, in, in God's creation pattern. God created for six days, and he rested on the seventh. And then if you travel a little bit further through the Old Testament, you come to the book of Exodus, and you have the Ten Commandments, where God gives the Ten Commandments, and he says that we're to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then there's a whole other set of kind of Sabbath laws that we have, and they kind of design for us or tell us what it is we're supposed to do on the Sabbath. And if you keep those laws, then you will be blessed. But the difficulty with the Sabbath for Jews is a little bit like the difficulty for churches and music today. In other words, no, don't, don't, don't worry, we're not really going to go there this morning. But in, in other words, the point is that, that the Bible has stuff to say about it, but it's not that clear and it's not really that much. In other words, there, there's instruction for us affecting these things, but there's a lot of kind of gray area in terms of what's allowed. So in other words... It's really clear that no work is allowed on the Sabbath for a Jew, including collecting manna while God's people wandered in the wilderness. But then they have all these arguments about what it means to work, like what constitute actual work on the Sabbath. I mean, one Jewish source says this, that the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for the teaching of Scripture is scanty and the rules are many. In other words, what Scripture has to say about the Sabbath is like this. 
people say about it is like this. In other words, people have made a lot more rules than God himself has actually said. So Jesus and his disciples are, tra- disciples are traveling along, and as they do, they've got some people with them. Well, as you can imagine, people, some people that are very interested in what he's doing are the Pharisees. And they're very, very strict about Sabbath keeping. And so the first thing that they address, and really the first way that Jesus breaks their Sabbath, is in his Sabbath work. So they attack Jesus in verse 2. They're not questioning here whether Jesus can, or Jesus' disciples can go into someone else's field and pick the grain. So this isn't a question of whether they're in their own field or someone else's. They're asking whether they can pick grain on this particular day. And this is where they attack Jesus. Your disciples, verse 2, are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, you may remember that by this time with the Pharisees, we're not dealing just with Scripture or just with what, what God actually says, but there's, this, there's what God has said, and then over time they've added all of these other traditions, and those traditions have become like what God says. So we're dealing not just kind of with this kernel, okay, what does God clearly say, but also what do we say about what God says? And over time, those things become very hard to tell apart. I mean, what did God say? God said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, by this time, Jewish tradition has added to the clear command, don't work on the Sabbath. They've specified 39 different types of work that you can't do on the Sabbath. And these traditions continue and continue to be, fought, to be refined. Uh, so what happens is, uh, later, even after this, they come up with a new tradition, which is, you can go into a grain on the Sabbath, or go into a field on the Sabbath and pick grain, as long as you don't use any tools. But if you use a tool to help you get that grain off the stalk, then you're breaking the Sabbath. But if you just use your hands, you're not breaking the Sabbath. So what they've done is they've established all of these traditions around what God actually says. You see, if you try to legislate behavior without changing people's hearts, over time it leads to silliness. And that's really what's happening here. But Jesus musters a pretty good defense in verses 3 to 5. Well, it's common for Jewish teachers to debate the finer points of the law, and when they do this, often a way that you would respond to this is with a question and then appealing to an authority like Scripture, and that's what Jesus does here. And in doing so, he uses two illustrations. One, he uses a story about David, and the second illustration is Old Testament laws concerning the priests. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, David is hiding from King Saul. So if you read through this section of Scripture, you'll find that David has already been anointed as the next king of Israel. Saul knows this, and Saul's getting a little jealous of David. And over time, Saul becomes psychotically jealous of David and attempts to kill him. Well, you can imagine if the king is after your head, that's no safe place to be. So David flees from Saul's court, and he's hiding at this point. But David's best friend is Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. So David is best friends with the crown prince, and Ironically enough, even though it will be taking Jonathan's throne, Jonathan's not jealous and actually helps David. So David's hiding in a field, and Jonathan essentially goes to feel out his dad and say, and find out, you know, is it safe for David to come back into the kingdom, essentially. And he goes, and he learns it's not safe, and so there's this story where he's going for target practice in a field, and he shoots some arrows, and as he shoots these arrows, if he shoots it over where David is hiding, then it's not safe to return. And sure enough, it's, it's not safe for David to come back, and so Jonathan warns him. Well, Saul is like, like any good parent, and when he finds out that Jonathan warned David and saved David's life, he blames it on his mom. He says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. 
And so, you know, Saul, not only is a good king, he's a really good parent. Well, David is fleeing, he's running away, and he shows up at a town called Nob. And he's there, and he's desperately hungry. He goes, and he's, he's looking for food, and there's no food except holy bread that's there on a table. Now, the holy bread, Leviticus 24, tells us it's an offering to the Lord, and the only people allowed to eat it are priests. So David goes into a town, and the only food available to him and his men is this holy bread. God himself says David and his men can't eat this, and yet Scripture never condemns David for eating the bread. So David does something, and yet God himself never condemns this. Jesus' point with the Pharisees is basically this. He uses David as an illustration. David goes, eat, goes and eats bread that he's not supposed to because he's starving. And his point is this. You're so strict in your interpretation of the law that you condemn people that God himself will not condemn. The Pharisees, so there's, there's the judge of the universe, and he's, he's got all this under control, and now the Pharisees have set themselves up as kind of higher judges. God himself will not condemn David, and yet you will condemn these disciples. You see, David and his men are desperately hungry, and God seems to recognize their need in that moment. The disciples aren't even breaking any laws to feed themselves, and yet the Pharisees condemn them. So what Jesus is doing is, he, is he's questioning the Pharisees' basic approach to the law itself. If you kind of follow the logic, if David is worth making an exception for, then surely someone greater than David is also worth making an exception for. Jesus will build on this idea. So that's his first illustration, is David going and eating this bread that's for the priests. The second illustration goes to the law itself, the priests itself in verse 5. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, when he's saying profane the Sabbath, he's not saying they're walking around cussing. He's rather saying, what are you not allowed to do on the Sabbath? You're not allowed to work, right? Well, what are the priests doing all day on the Sabbath? Working. Well, why is it the priests are allowed to work? Because there's this hierarchy of, there's this understanding that there's this structure within the law. So there are Sabbath regulations. You can't work, you can't go, you can't go gather any manna on the Sabbath, but the priests work on the Sabbath. Why? Because worship supersedes the Sabbath laws for the other people. They provide, essentially, for worship for everyone else. So if the priests who lead worship in the temple can work on the Sabbath then the same line of reasoning holds true here as it did with David. If, some, if, if David can essentially break this tradition, then someone greater than David can do this. If, if the priests can break the Sabbath tradition that everyone else must submit to, then someone greater than the priests certainly can do this. And this brings us to Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees in verses 6 to 8. He marks his authority. Well, the priest's function in the temple makes them an exception to the Sabbath laws. So the temple regulations for the priests are greater than the Sabbath regulations for everyone else. In other words, provision for worship is greater than the command for rest. So Jesus kind of sees what the Pharisees are holding in, the hand, in their hand, and he raises them one. In verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, in the Pharisees' mind, that's impossible because the temple is their pride and joy. It's the center of Jewish worship. It's the center of Jewish religion. It's the pinnacle of Jewish culture. 
It's a dwelling place of God with his people. It's the greatest symbol of everything that it means to be Jewish. If you flipped over a Jewish coin, you know, the, the temp, they'd have the temple on there. So if someone or something were to replace the temple, it undermines everything that they believe for centuries. And then Jesus says, the time is here. The time has arrived. Something greater than the temple is here. Then he rebukes the Pharisees in verse 7. If you had known what this means, then he quotes, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is, I mean, he's arguing with lawyers, but he, he's, he's a genius here. He quotes from their own law books, Hosea 6.6, 6, the very Old Testament that these Pharisees claim to know so well. And then he says, you don't understand it at all. I mean, this has to be infuriating for the Pharisees. I mean, they're, they're the interpretation experts, and Jesus is like, if you understood, then you would know what this means. They don't understand. You see, the Pharisees take pride in their knowledge of the law, yet they completely miss the heart of the law. They know all the, all the technicalities, and yet they've missed the, the, the intent behind what God is doing. It's 10 chapters later in the book of Matthew, and Jesus is asked by another lawyer, what is the great commandment in the law? Apparently, lawyers like to debate. And the Pharisees, what would they answer? They'd probably say, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, because that's what they've spent their life devoting themselves to, and it's really how they kind of solidify their influence, and yet Jesus gives a different answer. He says, what is the great commandment you shall love? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, for the Pharisees, the law is about regulations. For Jesus, the law is about love. Now, we don't often equate those two words, do we? Law and love, and yet for Jesus, that is the very heart of the law. And so in making this point, Jesus here sets two things in contrast, mercy and sacrifice. Or you might say, love and law. Now, Jesus isn't saying that the sacrificial laws don't matter. How do we know that? Because it won't be very long before he dies to satisfy those very laws. But Jesus is saying that love and compassion, not rule-keeping, are the true marks of what it means to be a child of God. You see, compassion, not condemnation, should characterize the people of God. Well, Jesus himself will keep the law perfectly. It's, it's not a problem for him. Like, he can do this. No, no one else can, but Jesus can keep the law perfectly. But he's saying that those who truly understand God's law also understand that our greatest obedience is to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then he makes another remarkable statement. He says, something greater than the temple is here, verse 6. And then in verse 8, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying that he, as the lawgiver, is sovereign over their worship tradition, sovereign over the law itself, and therefore he has the right to understand how it should be lived out. And Jesus says, to live as God intends on the Sabbath, you must live with compassion and mercy. If you will fulfill, fulfill God's intent for this day, you must live with compassion and mercy. 
So, so let's think about this for a moment. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So he's going to do it all. In other words, we must value what God says, but we must also interpret God's words through a Jesus-focused lens. Jesus, at some level, affects how we understand not just Sabbath laws, but, but the entire law. Jesus comes and he fulfills it, and in doing so, he fundamentally changes our relationship to the law. We've seen this before. Traditions aren't bad, but it's so tempting for us to equate our traditions with what God actually says. And this is a conversation that Jesus has over and over and over again. In fact, he probably has it the most pointedly with the Pharisees a few chapters later in Matthew 15, but he's already had this conversation before. So, so we've got to be really careful not to add to what God says or take away from what God says. So that's one thing, is we have to be careful about our traditions and equating what God says with our traditions. But secondly, mercy must shape our worship. It's kind of like this. Uh, it's been a number of years ago. It was well before I got married. I don't even remember if we were uh, dating at the time. But honestly, I could make the same mistake today. Uh, so I was making some brownies. And in making brownies, I guess I grabbed something out of the cabinet. I wasn't paying careful attention. It was a white granular substance. And so I added, like, I don't know, what let's say it's a cup of this or something. I added it to the brownies. And I'm mixing it up. And I mean, this tastes terrible. I mixed up salt and sugar. And so I, I added salt to this, the amount of, I mean, it was probably supposed to have like a half a teaspoon of salt, and I added like a cup of salt. And, you know, being just a young budding uh, baker, I decided, well, I'll just add like more sugar and flour to it, and that'll make it okay. I mean, it did not matter what I added to it. I mean, I, I mean maybe if I made like enough to feed the entire globe or something like that, I, I could have I fixed this. But eventually, I just had to throw it out. Because I added so much salt to this that there was, I mean, no matter how much sugar I add to this recipe, whether it's powdered, confectionery, or just typical granular or brown sugar, no matter how much sweetness I add to this, it's going to taste really bad. Because the salt has kind of seasoned everything in there to the point where no matter what I do, these brownies are going to be terrible. I pitched them and I started over. Well, Jesus says that for us, the thing that flavors and shapes our worship, our time together, it's not a set of traditions, rather, it's a heart of mercy, love, and compassion. And if you add mercy, love, and compassion to traditions, it don't, it don't matter. They, they don't really mix. You can keep adding and keep adding and keep adding, but, but Jesus says mercy, not tradition, shapes our relationship with the Lord. I mean, God's word is really clear. Hebrews 10, don't neglect the gathering for worship. But what Jesus is getting, here is getting at here is not whether we should come together for worship. He's getting at what does it taste like? What does it smell like? What's the flavor of our gathered worship? And he says the flavor must be grace. I mean, the last thing that people who walk in the doors of our church should be feeling is a sense of self-awareness because of how the people around them are looking at them. Maybe people are looking at them sideways. And here's the thing about genuine compassion. You can pretend you have it, but it's really obvious if you actually have it. And I know this because it happened to me this week. Uh, so we were hanging out with some uh, friends here at church, 
and uh, we were doing this, and um, we're playing, and uh, Clara Jane takes a tumble, and when she does this, she has glasses, and the glasses hit her, hit her forehead, and she gets a cut right here above her eye, and she's bleeding. <laughs> well, we're there, and this other couple's there, and so what's the first question I ask Clara Jane? Did you break your glasses? I mean, there's a good, compassionate dad, right? Are, 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 are the glasses okay? Hey, you know, I mean, not, you know, I know you're just gushing blood, but how, how are the glasses? And, uh, and, and the, um, um, another mom who was there was like, you know, you, you could tell you're a parent. You're like, someone just, you know, falls down, is bleeding, like, hey, are your glasses okay? And, and I, was, I was thinking about that. I was like, yeah, it's true. I was like, oh, we're going to have to buy another pair of glasses. I, mean, I could tell she, you know, was not mortally wounded or something. But, but the truth is, compassion isn't something you can really pretend to have. You know, it's not like, your glasses okay? I mean, are you okay? I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm done. I'm exposed at that point. And, and for us, mercy, love, grace, compassion, we can, we can put it on. But people know. It's, it's like that salt in the brownies. You can taste it. You can feel it. You see, merely, there's a difference between being compassionate and acting compassionate. And, and merely acting compassionate isn't compelling. It isn't believable. But I mean, let's not leave this here on Sunday. If mercy and grace shape your relationship with your spouse, how would that change your relationship with the person that you live with the most? I mean, in marriage... You know, there's this commitment to love, and yet often in marriage we get into kind of justice-oriented relationships. In other words, it's kind of a tit-for-tat, I do, you do. I do more for you than you do for me. You do more for me than I do for you, and there's this sense of growing in justice. But the essence of mercy is what? Mercy is completely unfair. It's, it's not something that's earned. It's, it's not something that, that you deserve, it's gracious and loving. In other words, if God acted toward us like we act toward one another, we'd be toast. I mean, how would it shape your life as a husband if mercy, not frustration, not a sense of fairness, not a sense of entitlement, shaped your love of your wife? How would it shape your care of your children if compassion not judgment, shaped your relationship with your children. You see, the awesome thing about the way Jesus looks at the law is it's all about our heart. And we'll see soon that out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. In other words, if you understand the heart of the law, mercy, love, compassion, it affects everything else in life. So this brings us to the second time that Jesus is going to challenge their Sabbath laws, and this time it's Sabbath healing. So now Jesus goes from the fields and he walks right into their synagogue, verse 9. And when he walks into the synagogue, he walks into a trap. Now it's not your typical trap because there's a man there with a withered hand, a paralyzed hand, a hand he can't use. There's no reason in the world that that this should be a trap. But that's exactly what happens in verse 10. Well, as you can imagine, the Pharisees haven't just debated, you know, how much work can you do on the Sabbath? They have also debated, how far can you go in caring for the sick 
on the Sabbath. I mean, check out the Pharisees. They're so awesome. When they're concerned about what, sick people? No, they're concerned that you don't go too far in caring for a sick person. I mean, their view is not toward people. It's completely toward what? Toward their traditions. Not how can we love, how can we serve, how can we care? What do we need to do to keep our traditions? Well, we don't have to guess here at their motives. Kind of with each other, we end up guessing at motives. But Matthew tells us in verse 10, they do this so that they might accuse him. They do this because they know how Jesus is going to respond. They've all, Jesus hasn't told them what the two great commandments are, but they already know that Jesus knows how to love his neighbor as himself. And so Jesus defends himself again in verses 11 and 12. Well, his defense is a little bit different this time around. Last time he appeals to Scripture, but this time the attack is directly at him, not at his disciples. So the Pharisees ask, Jesus, how far can we go without breaking established tradition? Jesus' response is much more basic. He essentially changes the conversation. He says it's always lawful to do what? To do good on the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees are debating how far can a family member go in caring for a sick person? How far can a medical professional go on the Sabbath? The Pharisees are fixated on rules and regulations, but Jesus changes the conversation to something much more basic. Is it good to love your neighbor? Yeah, it's good seven days a week to love your neighbor. And then he kind of gives them an illustration in verse 11. Which one of you, if he has a sheep and it falls into a pit, will not take it out on the Sabbath? Jesus is pointing out some hypocrisy here. The Pharisees walk in. There's a man here who can't work because he has a paralyzed hand. And they're questioning whether Jesus should be healing this man or not. But if they had a sheep on that same day that fell into a pit, they'd take it out. In other words, they're more concerned about their own property than they are about the life of this person. So Jesus says in verse 12 of how much more value is a man than a sheep. Genesis 1 records God's creation of all things and says that when God created humans, they're different from the rest of creation because they are made in his image. Jesus changes the conversation. They say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They, they want to debate Jesus. Jesus answers, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I'm here to love. And so this man stretches out his hand and he's healed. And this brings us to the response of the Pharisees. It's really, in verse 14, the most damning sentence that we see here. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus does good, and the Pharisees want to kill him. Even in Pharisee world, is breaking the Sabbath tradition a capital offense? Nah. It's never a capital offense. To, it's not a capital offense to work on the Sabbath. You see, they're not concerned with what God requires, but with their interpretation of what God requires. Do you see the line? It's the one that Jesus hits over and over and over again. There's what God requires, and then there's what we think about what God requires. And over time, they've conflated the two. They blur the lines, and now they say that people are challenging God when the, what they're really challenging is us. You see this? They're threatening our influence, our way of life. Jesus heals someone, and they want to kill him for it. 
way out of whack. Have you ever had a reaction like this? I mean, a reaction that's out of keeping with something that happened, or you've seen someone have a reaction like this? God's doing work, and yet people resent what God is doing because it threatens their influence? Well, it's easy for us in understanding a passage like this to quickly think of other people or other examples. Why is that? Because other people's traditions are different from our own. I mean, you all got a set of traditions, and I got a set of traditions, or maybe parents have a set of traditions, and kids have a set of traditions, and we all value our traditions, and we tend to judge people for the way they don't keep our traditions or our expectations, and yet at the end of the day, what matters is, are we going to love God with all our heart? Are we going to love our neighbor as ourselves? We see ways that people of other, other people have done this when all along we are doing the very same thing that those people are doing. You see, the secret sauce to being a good Pharisee isn't just focusing on keeping the rules. It's also focusing more on the faults of others than on mine, than on ours. And I'm not an expert at Sabbath traditions, but I am an expert at this. I'm an expert at I see the speck in someone's eye, and I got this giant log sticking out of my own eye, and I have a hard time seeing that. We call it a blind spot. Well, the reason it's a blind spot, the reason we can't see it is because it's so big. Everyone else can see it, but, but we can't see it. Why is it that we have this tendency? Why is it that Jesus has this conversation over and over and over again? It's because we're sinners. But one of the deceptions of sin is that it allows us to judge ourselves very positively and others Pretty harshly. But what God's word says is that before the law of God, we're all the same. We're all lawbreakers, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God's word reflects God's character, and so James 2.10 tells us that to break the law in one point is to be guilty of all of it. At the end of the day, we all have the same problem. It's a different set of circumstances, but it's the same problem. Apart from Jesus, we can never be truly, purely good. Romans 3, there is no one who does good, no, not one. And our way of dealing with our sin is finding other sinners who are worse to compare ourselves to. But God says the only answer is to turn in humility and repentance to Jesus and cry out to him for sa- to save us. You see, the law couldn't save the Pharisees, and our goodness can't save us. So if you're here at some level, depending on some idea of your own goodness, would you turn from your sin, trust Jesus to save you? And he will. But he can only save those who come to him in repentance and faith. Let's take a moment now. We'll respond to God's word. I'll give you a moment to respond personally there in your seat. And then I'll close this time in prayer in just a minute. Let's talk to him now.